We are in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling The Story of God. We are, we are shifting as a church away from viewing the Bible primarily as a collection of God's laws and commands and moving more towards seeing the Bible from start to finish, from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 as the story of God. The Bible is the story of, of who God is and what God is doing and, and what he's up to in the world through Jesus Christ. We believe that if we will uh, read the Bible and uh, interpret the Bible, apply the Bible more as a story instead of as a, a constitution or, a, or an owner's manual, then we'll be better able to connect the dots in Scripture. We'll more accurately interpret God's will for us and for His world, and we'll be uh, better to more easily identify like we'll be able to see ourselves in the narrative more easily and be able to find our, our place and our, and our parts to play in the story. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started with Act 1, the beginning, right? This is creation, Genesis 1 and 2. This is the pattern of God's kingdom. And we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God is the creator, and he creates a perfect world for, for all people and for himself. And what we have in Act 1 is a picture of God and humans living together. They are ruling and reigning together. They are taking care of God's very good creation together. And they live in face-to-face perfect communion. And then last week we looked at Act 2 of the story of God. This is what we're calling the crash. This is sin. It starts in Genesis 3 with this rebellion against God and disobedience to his word. And because of sin, the humans are now separated from their creator. They're not in his presence anymore. And the sin, as the story goes on, just gets worse and worse and worse. And it spreads so much that by the end of the second act in Genesis 10 and 11, the Bible says the whole world is corrupt. All of creation has been spoiled. The humans are no longer living in righteous relationship with God or with one another. The kingdom has perished, and it's bad. It's broken, and it's bad. But then, Act 3, which begins in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, comes to one of the humans, and he articulates a very solemn promise to make things right. God guarantees to repair the relationship and to once again live with his people. In Act 3, this is where God promises, I'm going to fix this. Act 3 is good news. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abram and Sarai. Just an old married couple from Ur. Ur. You are Ur. Such a funny word, isn't it? Ur. It makes me think like, it sounds like one of those little bitty West Texas town that nobody knows, you know, where it is exactly. You know, you haven't heard of it before maybe. You've never heard of Ur? Yeah, Ur, Texas. You know, it's like it's just west of Kermit between 
I don't know, Wink and Wicket. You know, it's somewhere, somewhere around there. Have you ever been to Ur? I've got a, a best friend. He had an uncle who lived in Ur. It sounds like one of those little towns to me. Ur of the Chaldeans. It's actually in modern-day Iraq. It's where Ur is. But, but God makes this covenant, and he uses the word bless five times. Hopefully, you've already talked about this in your Bible classes this morning. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Some people say God uses the word bless five times in the covenant because he had used the word curse five times back in Act 2. So this is God's solution for our sin. This is how God's going to fix the problem and redeem the creation and restore the relationship through this covenant with Abraham and Sarah. And every single thing that happens for the rest of the story, from Genesis 12 all the way through Revelation 22, everything else in the Bible hangs on this covenant. And it's so important to the story so critical to what God is doing and who God is that he repeats it four other times. In Genesis 18, when Abraham is having that picnic lunch with the Lord and the angels under the trees, God says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. In Genesis 22, when Abraham takes Isaac up on Mount Moriah, the Lord says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. In Genesis 26, God repeats the covenant to Abraham's son, Isaac. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. In Genesis 28... When Jacob has the dream about the stairway to heaven, and this is a long time before Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, but God says to Jacob, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. God proclaims the details of the covenant five times at the beginning here of Act 3. A lot of people say because the word for corruption is used five times in Act 2. And so in a way, God's blessings, God's covenant is undoing the sin and the curse and the corruption that is now taking over the world. Church, this is enormous. This is such good news for us. This is everything. That, that despite the wickedness, rebellion, and sin, despite the chaos and the darkness of Act 2, God's going to bless the whole world and all the people in it through this family. The Apostle Paul calls this the gospel in advance. In Galatians, Paul says God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. And then God seals the covenant with blood. Blood makes the covenant official. 
and binding. That's the way it is in the Middle East. Since before recorded history, right up to this moment in Genesis, maybe 5,000 or so years ago, right up to today in some Bedouin communities in the Middle East, a covenant requires the shedding of blood. And that's what God and Abraham do in Genesis 15. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham cuts up these five animals. God says it's got to be these five, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And throughout Act 3, these are the only five animals authorized by God to be sacrificed to him. It all starts right here. And Abraham cuts the animals in half, and God walks through their blood to ratify the covenant. This is how God says, this is mine. This is how God owns the promise. This is me. I'm going to make this happen. In Genesis 22, when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son to uphold his end of the covenant, Abraham's ready to do it, right? You remember this story? He takes Isaac up the mountain. And remember, Isaac, he's not as ready. He says, Dad, um, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And remember what Abraham says? The Lord will provide the lamb. And he did. A ram caught in the bushes by his horns. Remember? The blood of a lamb was shed that day for the covenant instead of the blood of Abraham's child. The blood of a lamb provided by God. And from here on out, blood sacrifice is the central aspect of life for God's people. There's lots of blood. There's blood everywhere, blood all the time. They're always pouring blood on the altars. They're sprinkling blood all over the people. They're painting their doorposts with blood, blood everywhere. And the blood is a constant reminder to the people God promised to pay for our sins. God made a promise that he was going to fix everything. And the blood also is a reminder to God. It's a prayer. Please, God, remember your promise to us. Please, Lord, remember you promised you were going to fix everything. And from Act 3 on, from, from Genesis 12 on, this is about the covenant, the promise. Now, this is a long act. This is the whole Old Testament. From Genesis 12 through the end at Malachi 4. And there are hundreds of scenes in this act. But the whole rest of the Old Testament is about God enacting the covenant and working it out. And it is long. If, if you were in a theater watching the story of God, Act 3 would be the super long act right before the intermission. And it would take forever. And I'm not going to try to preach the entire Old Testament, all 39 books this morning. You're welcome. I would like to. I'd like to try. I think it'd be fun. I think it would be profitable. But I love you. And I'm trying to maintain our very good relationship. So I'm not going to do that. But what we are going to do is this. I want to give you four things, okay? Four things that I think the covenant is all about. And these are four things that, that I think you should look for as you read the Old Testament. I think wherever you are in the Old Testament, it will help you to connect the dots. It will help you to um, interpret God's will. It will also help you identify and find your place in the story if you'll look for these four things that I think God explicitly states in the covenant. 
So let's, let's look at these four things. The first one is revelation. Revelation. God gives us his covenant, and he works through the covenant to reveal himself. He tells us who he is, and he shows the whole world who he is by his covenant actions with his people. In Exodus 34, God does not destroy his people after they build and worship the golden calf. Remember what he does? He reveals himself to them. He discloses to the people exactly who he is. He tells Moses his name. Verse 5, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We know this passage. We better know this passage because we spent all of 2022 just about in this passage. This is such an important revelation of God that these words are quoted nine times in the Old Testament. This is who God is. These are his eternal characteristics. This is God's divine nature. It is so important to God that we know him. In Exodus 7, God tells Moses that he's going to bring the plagues against Egypt. Well, why are you going to bring these plagues? He says, I'll lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I'll bring out my people, the Israelites, so the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When God is talking about the plague of blood in the Nile River, he says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. The plague of flies in Exodus chapter 8. By this you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. The plague of locusts in Exodus 10. This is so you may know that I am the Lord. In Exodus 14, when they're getting... Uh, uh, well, when, when, when God's getting close now to, to releasing the Israelites or rescuing them from Egypt, at the beginning of chapter 14, he says, I'm going to gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. He says it twice. The Egyptians will know, verse 18, that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, in Joshua chapter 2, when they're getting close to Jericho, Rahab confesses that she knows who the Lord is. I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. God wants to be known. He wants us and the whole world to know him and to know who he is and what he's all about. When they're getting ready to cross the Jordan at the end of Joshua chapter 4, Joshua says, the Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Listen, when you have a covenant with God, you don't have some far off deity you can't relate to, you have a God you can know and a God you can count on. 
The covenant is about revelation. Secondly, it's also about presence. The covenant is about the presence of God with his people. We're going to be together. We're going to live together, just like in the garden. The covenant is about God being visibly and physically present with and among his people. In Exodus chapter 6, when God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, he says, I'm the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. In Exodus 13, God leads them through the wilderness wanderings. He is physically and visibly present with them. He goes ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God is with them physically, visibly with his people. And then he brings them to a mountain in the middle of the desert. And he tells them the details of the covenant. This is what uh, Stephen read to us at the table during the meal a few minutes ago. They're all on the mountain there in God's presence. He is with them physically and, and visibly. There's smoke, there's fire, there's thunder and lightning. They can hear the voice of the Lord. They're trembling with fear. And Moses sends young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Well, nobody can see God and live unless you're sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God. And they ate and drank. God uses the blood of the covenant, the blood of the sacrifice, to cleanse the people so they can come right into his presence and sit down at his table and eat and drink with the creator of heaven and earth. They saw God. And they ate and drank. Notice it says it twice because it's so shocking. They saw God. No, no, really. They saw God. They had a meal with the Lord. The blood made them righteous. The blood gave them access to the presence of God. And it's that kind of intimacy. It's that kind of physical face-to-face -face relationship and presence that God and the humans enjoyed in the beginning. In Act 1, this is, this is exactly what God is promising now to restore. We need to understand this if we're going to understand the story. God longs 
to physically live with his people. It's a physical thing with God. So he tells them to build him a tent in Exodus 29. Build me a tent, he says, at the very end of the chapter, and I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. Why would you bring them out of Egypt? So that I might dwell among them. In Leviticus 26, again, talking about the tabernacle, the creator of heaven and earth says, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Church, that's the promise. That's the covenant. This is the language throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. I will live with you. I will walk among you. I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. Five times in Ezekiel, four times in Jeremiah. You see it in Zechariah. This is the promise. I will live with you. I'll walk among you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. This is the covenant. This is the promise from God to his people. I don't think it's an old covenant and a new covenant. I don't think we've got two covenants in the story. I think it's one eternal, everlasting promise from God to his people that he's going to make his dwelling place with us. Now, we're going to look at Act 4 next Sunday, but you already know where Jesus comes into the picture here. John 1 says, the word of God, remember, the will of God, who God is and what God wants became flesh. And what? Made his dwelling among us. In Act 5, which is all about the church, we'll look at this, but the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 says, this is what the church is all about. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. See, it's one promise. And then at the end of the story, Act 6, we get this beautiful portrait of the perfection of God's kingdom when everything is finally made right. And at the beginning of Revelation 21, the writer says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with his people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is God's eternal promise to be present with us, to live with us, right with us. Thirdly, partnership. Partnership with God. Genesis 12 says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Not in spite of you, not instead of you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God saves his people and he changes them and he calls them to bless the whole world. He pulls them out of Egypt and he rescues them from slavery and then he gathers them to his presence on the mountain. Exodus 19, he's got them there, right there in his presence and he says, I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You saw what I did, right? You experienced it. You will be my treasured possession. You are now royal property. You belong to God. 
The whole earth is mine. The Lord can do whatever he pleases. And it pleases him to make us his people. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel belongs to God. And yes, they are called out to live separately from the rest of the world, but not in a way that they're isolated from all the other nations. They are holy and they are priestly. The whole purpose is to bless the entire world in partnership with God. Israel is saved not just for Israel's sake, but so God can work through them to save all of humanity. You know, when God's people break the covenant, when they, when they live in ways that are not holy, yes, there are some serious implications for their relationship with God. But much bigger than that, it thwarts the salvation plans of heaven for everybody else. In the exile, when Israel was feeling the full weight of the consequences of her sins, the focus in Scripture is on how it's negatively impacting the salvation of the rest of the world. Isaiah 49, 6, God says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Even in this darkest period of Israel's history, when her own release from captivity is the most pressing concern, God reminds them of the bigger picture. He reminds them it's not just about them. Why is God saving Israel? For the sake of others, not for themselves. We are all covenant partners with the almighty creator of heaven and earth. But we don't always act like it. Somehow in the United States, it seems that Christianity has become, how can God bless me? How is the church blessing me? What am I going to get if I follow the Lord? What am I going to get if I commit to this church family? Somehow we have fostered this attitude that being a Christian it's all about getting your needs met, or being fed, or being blessed by God or, or by His church, and that's all it is. No wonder strong, smart, healthy people are bored out of their minds with church and with Christianity. We're not just God's people, okay? We are God's people, but we are created by God in the image of God and we are equipped and we are empowered by God to partner with God in his salvation mission for the whole planet. That's exciting to me. Can you imagine that? That's Christianity. That's church. What is God doing through me for the whole planet that he created and that he loves? We are true partners with God. We are invited and we are commanded by God to join him in his mission to save the world. We are invited and commanded by God to do justice and to show compassion in society, to share the suffering of those who suffer, to free those who are enslaved by their own sins and oppressed by the sins of others. Being in covenant with God is not a passive thing. 
okay? Being in covenant with God is not you just sitting there with your friends and eating popcorn waiting for the movie to start, okay? You're in the movie. You are in the movie. We are in the show by virtue of God's covenant of grace. Each of us has been handed a script. We've been chosen by God, and he's given us a part to play, and he's given us lines to say. You are in the story. You are in the play. Words and language, no matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. I see that look in Mr. Pitt's eye, like 19th century literature has nothing to do with going to business school or medical school, right? Maybe. Mr. Hopkins, you may agree with them, thinking, yes, we should simply study our Mr. Pritchard and learn our rhyme and meter and go quietly about the business of achieving other ambitions. A little secret for you. Huddle up. Huddle up! We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. And medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, O oh, me, O oh, life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O oh, me, O oh, life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. The powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? Words and... The powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. The powerful play goes on. And you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? You need to own this, okay? I do. We all do. What is God doing through me? Who is he impacting through me? How am I turning the gifts that God's given me around to bless others? The powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? So the covenant is about partnership. And lastly, it's about God's faithfulness. Church, there are two things we know. One, the devil has not given up on us. He's not lost interest in us ever since his great victory in the garden in the beginning. He still comes at us every day. Can I get an amen on that? Two, God does not stop saving us. God never, ever gives up on us. He will never stop in his love and in his care for us and for the world he created. The devil keeps trying and the Lord keeps saving. That's the covenant. 
And throughout Act 3, through the whole rest of the Old Testament, we see Israel chasing after the pagan idols and God forever restoring them back to their right ways. We see Israel rebel against God. We see wickedness and evil in in God's priests and kings. We see sin in the Old Testament. Lots of sin. Horrible sin. And we see God relentlessly bringing them back every single time. Our God will not be stopped. In the covenant, God says, I will bless you if you live right. That's what it says. Look it up. Those are God's words. If you obey my commandments, then I will bless you. And if you don't, then I'll make other arrangements. That's our God. In Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you. Oh, that's good news because I can't do it myself. Our God has made a covenant that he will do whatever it takes to live with us and be our God, whatever it takes. That's his promise. And he won't let it not be fulfilled. He gives Noah the rainbow covenant and Noah goes out immediately and gets drunk and exposes himself. He gives Israel the Sinai covenant, and Israel immediately builds a golden calf and worships it. He gives David the royal covenant, and this king, after God's own heart, goes out immediately and breaks more than half the Ten Commandments in one weekend. But God keeps finding other ways. He keeps making other arrangements. His covenant will not be broken. Do you believe it? Believe it. Abraham believed it, and God accredited it to him as righteousness. If you believe God's word, if you trust God to save you, if you believe that God will not be stopped in fulfilling his promises to you and to the whole world, he'll consider that as faith, and he'll give you credit. He'll apply a righteousness to you, a holiness to you that you don't have and that you can't get any other way. Stand with me, church. I want to read from Romans chapter 4. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Abraham is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. 
He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. If God has promised you life, if God has promised you life in Jesus, life in his Holy Spirit, if he's promised you a life of bearing kingdom of God fruit, if he's promised you life in his body, the church, and if he has ratified it by the blood of his only son, Jesus the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If he has done that, and he has, how will you receive that? Have you received it? Will you receive it? How will you respond? Let's pray together. Father, In Jesus' name, thank you for the covenant. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for the blood of the Lamb. We're not worthy. We are unrighteous in every way. We deserve to be separated from you forever, but God, you have promised that you're going to live with us. You're going to walk among us. You're going to be our God. We're going to be your people. You've made that promise, and you have demonstrated throughout all of history that you're never going to let that promise be broken. All we can do is say thank you. All we can do is receive that from you with humility and with grace. Father, we love you. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people say together, amen.